Video Vortex Podcast respectfully acknowledges that we are recording on the lands of the Bunurong, Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and we acknowledge and remind people that sovereignty was never ceded. What is it that we're watching? Distinguished guests, welcome to Video Vortex. Yes, it's just down there, you can't miss it. Welcome everyone to another episode of Video Vortex. This is our second episode as we go on our strange, personal and hopefully international journey through (laughs) various topics of cinema, primarily from an academic-y theory kind of perspective as our foundation, but we're all weirdos and oddballs here and we like to ramble so it'll be as accessible as possible. My name is Ben Buckingham, now known as Bucks to save on simplicity, (laughs) with my co-host, Steph Fellows. Hello, everybody. My other co-host, Ben Volchok. Hello. Hello, Ben. Do I get a, 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 do I get a, a, a sneaky little nickname as well to differentiate? Do you want me? to continue being Chocks, or do you want to just be old Ben? I mean, if you're gonna be, if you're gonna be Bucks, then I could, I could always just fill in the Ben slot. But whatever's easiest for you, you can, if... you can, you can call. I no, I, I don't feel comfortable with Chocks. Let's. <laughs> it feels weird. But you feel comfortable filling the Ben slot. Uh, yeah, sure. Cool. Okay, the slot is all yours, my friend. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm glad we got that sorted. <laughs> <laughs> so in episode two, we've decided that our loose foundational topic will be national cinema and ideas relating to national cinema. What is it? Does it exist? How is it mutated? How does it continue mutating? As I've said previously, we want to come from a bit more with ideas, unusual uh, perspectives, but we also want to be able to kind of ramble and be a bit loose and free. You know, these are strange and heavy times, and I've actually had three different conversations with three different people today about how their brains just aren't working quite as well as they were six, seven months ago. (laughs) I think we're all experiencing that. So this is a way for us to, as I've said in past episodes, stay a bit sane, keep up to date, make us feel like we're not just, or at least myself, not just endlessly watching films with no purpose. This is now our purpose. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a brain exercise, but hopefully more fun than exercises. Exercise is fine, you know. I dug dug a hole last week. You what? I dug a hole last week. Oh, wow. I think I'll be digging uh, another hole next of, week. of national cinema. <laughs> oh, okay. burn. Okay. <laughs> Ben's burning quickly in his slot. Uh, mm. And the hole well, keeps getting deeper. I mean. Mm. Oh. Have we gone from a slot to being a hole now? Jesus. <laughs> and it'll soon open up into an entire vortex. Oh, wow, wow, I was wow, wondering wow. if you were going to get back to that. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yes. I'm just praying my power goes out now. <laughs> no, you don't. Oh, no. Well, uh, thanks let's, for joining us, everybody. Let's get into it. Okay, what is national cinema? 
when I was thinking about the idea of national cinema, even from like a definitional standpoint, are we uh, are we talking about films that are being produced in a particular country? Are we talking about films that represent a particular country in a particular light? Are we talking about films that glorify a country or, or, or films that explore darker sides of a country? Are they just simply films that have been made or set in a particular country that have then been retrospectively labelled as national cinema? What goes into these labels? All of these questions sort of started spinning up as soon as I even thought of the word national. One of the really fun things about trying to tackle national cinema as a concept is the answer to all of those questions is probably yes. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) I think that there's a lot of scope, although it's... I suppose, has a very specific definition that I'm sure Bugs can give us. It's the kind of thing that there's a lot of grey. There's a lot of shades of grey in this area. So it makes for an interesting topic for us to go through tonight. Mm, Yeah. As soon as you think of patriotic cinema, even propaganda cinema, to an extent that becomes a sort of national cinema. But then you, you start to dig deeper and you think, oh, okay, what kind of cinema represents a country's image? And how has that been subconsciously or consciously influenced in a in a covert way? Like how, mm. how much have particular national ideologies been funneled into certain images of a nation as presented to the outside world or even to its own citizen? And there's a big area for subverting those images or those representations as well, I think. And oh, a lot of oh. questions that we can go through in terms of the intention behind those kinds of films as well, whether they're intentionally subverting those representations or if they're meant to be an honest and true representation or somewhere in between. I thought that just occurred to me, how does a film function in relation to history and time? Because I would say that very definitely films that are made in an either individually with the intention or within an era that intends to develop a national identity through cinema is definitely a national cinema. Mm. But then that form of national cinema has a stronger propensity to degrade because it is fixed in a time and place with that intent. Mm. Whereas films that may not have intended to represent a national identity or national culture that aren't as obvious in their time and place for being a film of national identity can often come to be a stronger representation over time for that nation's culture and identity. Yeah, yeah I mean, we get it's even, you know, in terms of any form of artistic expression where when you're particularly trying to convey a certain idea it often doesn't work nearly as well as when you are just trying to write something or or draw something naturally as a just as a representation of just as an expression rather of who you are and of course with that will come where you are in in a particular point in time or place Mm. and and all of the trappings of who define you as a person will be expressed onto the work of art and so you can analyze all of those unintended bits of expression absolutely this is where one of our we'll we'll put in some references in the guide for books that we've looked at and articles uh, to keep track of 
One of our key texts this week was the BFI's The Cinema Book, third edition, edited by Pam Cook. And there's a, the article on national cinemas in the global era by Elizabeth Ezra. Puts it well when she says the concept of national cinemas is not coextensive with cinema itself. In some ways, they can be said to have existed only since the late silent or early sound era. For the first two or three decades after the birth of cinema, films were not explicitly identified with a particular nation-state, and production companies were international, sending camera operators, films for exhibition, and before long, production subsidies around the world. So it's not even that the cinema is something that is specific to a place for at least the start of its period. Even now, we now as we're moving into a, an era that is weirdly like the silent era again in production, and mm-hmm. you know we're seeing things like uh, how the Mandalorian is being shot with these massive CGI screens in the background that are creating alien landscapes in real times for the actors to act against, back like real time backdrops. It reminds me a lot of the silent era where they didn't have the quality of cameras to be able to shoot in and create control the environment well enough to be shooting outside for a large period and not even just silent cinema well into the 40s and that because of this restrictions cinema lived in this artificial enclosed manufactured world and now we're heading kind of back to that especially with things with COVID and such making Mm. it it, it's now oh it's easier just to have artificial world recreated so place does play a very important part but we can see how cinema as the quote just said is not coextensive with cinema, this idea of a national identity. It kind of the, the technologies and the, the productions and the, 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 the context in which the films are created keeps moving backwards and forwards across time. Again, I feel that the national identity and culture in cinema does come more into a focus when the nation itself feels threatened. So we see a lot of development of national cinemas, primarily post-Second World War, but more so into that sort of late 50s, 60s and 70s period is when we have a lot of the new waves around the world. Look at, for example, a lot of the Soviet cinemas and the Soviet, the waves of uh, like Czech, the Czechoslovakian new wave of the, the 60s and 70s and how that exists very much in relation to the Soviet occupation. You go and watch them yeah. and they're, they're 100% Czech or Slovak in mm. their ideas and their personality and their humour and their light and their darkness. But at the same time, there's they don't exist in those films without the opposition of a tyrannical, oppressive force. Yeah. It's certainly worth... I mean, we're already kind of walking into that realm of the idea of national cinema doesn't can't really exist without without sorry defining itself in relation to another setting itself up in opposition to something something to i mean it's well and good to have a definition of what it is to be a national film or to have a national identity but it's in comparison to x it's usually in comparison to another it's you can't really talk about the idea of a national cinema without first talking about the idea of a nation hmm yeah, and then it, it is quite political. Exactly. I mean, you know, going back to what you were talking about in, in terms of structuring or, or creating a national identity, especially in post-occupation or post-colonial emerging national identities, using cinema as a way to propel or, or sculpt an identity and, and affirm its identity. It's, yeah, interesting as well that you brought up the examples of Soviet cinema and Czechoslovakian cinema. 
because so- Soviet cinema was one of the first things that came to my mind when I was thinking about national cinema in terms of that was a that was a cinema that really had very definite shaping from the ruling from the powers that be that were <laughs> um and you know you you have all the tales of of banned and censored films films that weren't allowed to be shown or made you know how Parajanov was banned or how even someone like Eisenstein who was one of the key influential figures in forming a national cinema in the first place towards the mm. later parts of his career was completely thrown away for you know refusing to conform to certain national ideas yeah he's then, an interesting yeah, one isn't um, he in terms of it, mm. of how he sits in terms of history because he's obviously recognized as one of the uh, I hesitate to say auteur maybe that that is accurate here but in forging a new style that we now recognize as very nationalist or natu- nationalistic mm. of West, uh, Eastern Europe sorry uh, but to know that at the time he was still being put into various boxes <laughs> mm. And it's interesting there because and one area that came up for me in thinking about this was the concept of third cinema. Mm. And third cinema being very revolutionary and anti-fascism and, and often literally like illegal films that were made under the cover mm. of darkness and screened under the cover of darkness. The way that the Soviets and the Nazis turned cinema into propaganda and weaponized it essentially. But then the people, in, especially in third cinema, which is a lot of South American countries colonised by colonial powers, that the people were able to take what they learnt from these weaponised cinema and turn it back against their oppressors. Mm. Yeah. You come back to, again, that idea that, that cinema is just a way of communicating a language like we were talking about last week, cinema language, oh, my God, (laughs) a tool in which to communicate ideas. And so it isn't inherently nationalistic or not, but that it's always... And it's interesting you you mentioned auteur theory because I know that when you do cinema at university, that's like week three or something. Like, oh, God, shut up. (laughs) It is very helpful in a lot of ways. The fingerprints of its creators... Yeah. Always going to be on the film. Yeah. And whether that's mm. because they're looking in from outside or outside, in, inside, out, outside, around, upside down, who knows. <laughs> uh, whatever position they're coming from, they're still drawing on all of their experiences and all their past. And it's that there's fight between subjectivity versus objectivity and the idea that you can mm. ever achieve objectivity, which yeah. will be fascinating to talk about when we get to documentary, especially in the age of true crime documentaries and Netflix and how they're presented. But there's just the auteur theory, I think it's useful because it was pushing back against the idea of an anonymous crew making a film. Mm. It said mm. that this doesn't just come out of a studio saying, make this happen and it happens, that there were authors. It, the problem with auteur theory was it was so narrow, so specifically directed at directors, primarily yeah. men, primarily white men. Yeah. It's like, no, they are auteurs, but... They are an author amongst many. Mm. And then <laughs> we an... inevitably get into the tutorial discussions where people uh-huh. will pick someone at random and say, no, 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 they are an author," And you've got to just roll your head and let them talk because it's <laughs> yeah. faster than trying to argue with them. 
Yeah, that's the if you, any you know watching documentaries about filmmaking. It's like just about anybody on the crew can drastically influence the feel of the film depending on what the scene is, what's required, what's mm. going wrong, or what's going right on that day. And yes, there is overarching visions, and there certainly are. Just as in the, any other work environment, there are people who will be dominant and more controlling in either a positive or negative way of what the vision is. But again, it does like tie in with the national cinema idea it's because it's just one perspective. And I know I, I've appeared on a, a couple of different podcasts like Night Living Podcast and Projection Booth and I'm generally brought on to talk about some sort of Australian cinema and I sometimes wonder if there's much more mainstream quotation marks normal Australians out there listening going what is this rat bag talking about that's not what Australia's like this isn't Australian cinema that isn't a representation because it's the same thing it's like I've always said that films are essentially people like a bunch of people come together and bring this being like creation into the world uh, that has history and life and heart and brains, or at least you hope it has all those things. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. there's a couple out there that uh, probably fall a bit, a bit short of those Look, standards. You know, it's, but, you're always you know. going to have psychopaths in people and films wandering around. Uh, and yep. if we had video stores that were dedicated to each country, they would be as varied as the countries themselves. Mm. There are so yeah. many different perspectives and ideas and representations. And when you have arguments with people about equality and such, and it's like, well, no, everybody's position does matter. And if we are failing to recognize and elevate or support any one person, then to varying degree, our whole nation and society will be worse off. And it's much the same with cinema. It's, it's, mm. it's I think, a lot of a take up with... Um, especially with the developments in technology where now where a lot of films are getting rescued from obscurity and it's more easy to acquire a print and restore it and get it out there in some form. Mm. That we're starting to see this huge diversity of voices in cinema from, you know, the whole era of cinema, which in much way reflects a lot of what's happened with social media where it's like it's there's good and bad out there, but there's still a lot more voices being heard because the technology has become more open and accessible. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I'm very much a fan of everyone's got their opinions. We're talking about film, which in and of itself is going to be a subjective, like what we're talking about now. It's all subjective. We're all talking about our opinions here. We may give an opinion about a film and say, oh, that was crap or oh, that was excellent. And then when someone asks us to defend it, that's not an indictment. That's not, you know, that's not something to rebut or draw a line in the sand and say, oh, I'm not going to talk with that person anymore because they thought this film was fantastic. What's wrong with them? You know, it's it's all a conversation. It's all about hearing the different voices. And what we're trying to achieve, I think, with having these chats, these doing this podcast is let's have those conversations. Let's have a slightly more elevated conversation as opposed to a, yep, that was good. Yep, that was crap. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think now's the time to, to maybe point a little towards our own nation because the discussion of what is quality or worthwhile or not has started pretty early on. <laughs> Many people would know what is considered to be the first ever feature-length fictional film was made here in Australia, detailing one of our favourite... Ratbags. <laughs> Ratbags. <laughs> first feature-length fictional film, The True Story of the Cali Gang, which only exists in part now. Uh, it is mostly lost. I think it's yeah. only about 24 minutes or something that's left. 
What was it originally? Do we know? Feature length. <laughs> yeah, but what count was feature length back then? It, feature length now is two like, hours. I think it was like 90 minutes. Yeah, I think yeah, it was... Uh, I think it was something like that. It was like like an 80, 90 minute film. I could be wrong. When I was talking about national cinema, and I think both, you both suggested possibly doing Ned Kelly stuff, and I, on my previous podcast that I only had like thirteen episode, we did a true, we did a Ned Kelly episode. <laughs> <laughs> we did the the Mick Jagger, uh, Tony Richardson directed, I think Ned Kelly film the seventies, which is truly awful. <laughs> Again, Ben's opinion. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> Mick, Mick Jagger is well cast when he's playing himself. Uh, he's not so well cast in a really terrible beard playing an Irish Australian bush ranger. Oh God, I'm shuddering even remembering okay. it. Okay, move on, move on. <laughs> we did so the, the story of the Kelly Gang, um, not the true history of the Kelly Gang, but just the regular old story of the Kelly Gang was 60 minutes long. There, I was going to say I'd be surprised if it was 80 minutes. It opened on uh, in Melbourne on Boxing Day in 1906. It wow. was a huge hit, but it ran into trouble pretty quickly. Just looking here at the nfsa.gov.au site detailing it, yeah, there were reports of crime associated with it. And it says, in May 1907, the film inspired five local children in the Victorian town of Ballarat to break into a photographic studio to steal money, after <laughs> which they bailed up a group of school children at gunpoint. <laughs> Them damn kids, that no matter what era it is. <laughs> <laughs> in April, the Victorian Chief Secretary banned the film from Benalla and Wangaratta to towns with strong Cali connections. So that's from the, the NFSA, the National Film Sound Archive. There's a lot to do with national identity, even in its banning, yeah. because oh. for those who don't know, Ned Kelly was a bushranger. He was from Irish stock. He very much was anti-English he had he and his gang and his family and everybody in their circle hated the British as many many people did in Australia at that time being a, a penal colony depending on how you read your history and what you read of your history was either loved or despised mm. uh, he's certainly gone on to become an iconic figure representing our uh, larrikin and supposed subversive identity in Australia mm. and so this film it being a success was considered a negative thing because it was feeding this idea of Australians going against authority and not respecting the crown and the you know, king and queen and such. So the banning of it was also an attempt to shut down any kind of opposition and any kind of uh, fermenting of anti-colonial ideas and positions. Which is ironic given how many people who in love with ned kelly today are pretty much uh white supremacist police loving <laughs> fascists yeah again we come back to that how things change over time and how representations of national identity change now there's a mm. lot of people who very much shy away from an idea of I think it's interesting because there's always been people shying away from Ned Kelly as a national hero, but it started as being, oh, well, he's an outlaw and anti-British to being more just like, oh, he's just a bit of a thug to now like, oh, now he represents quite toxic ideas of masculinity and racism, which mm -hmm. again is just it's a moving ironic target. but terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's... Well, I mean, that's, you know, shifting perceptions across uh, across time and the way that we yeah 
reconsider things, redefine things across history, tying back to ideas of like, you know, what is national cinema? If we if we're talking about you know nations that don't exist anymore or nations that do exist but didn't at, at another time, and it's like where do where do we draw where do we draw those lines? Well, a lot of the Australian cinema is as old as cinema. It is, as I said, it's considered first feature-length film, feature-length fictional film, and it has has long history in the early days. There was a lot of cinema of an unusual variety being created here, much like in France and America, there were a lot of actualities made, which are the what we would call documents documentaries now the shorts about just daily things of people doing you know of, of places such as alighting from the paddle steamer brighton at manly from 1896 which is <laughs> australia's first film that's interesting then one of the other key films was it was released under the title of soldiers of the cross and was created by the salvation army limelight department premiered at the melbourne town hall on 13th of september 1900 under that title it comprised and this is again is from the bfi cinema book for australian cinema section by brian mcfarlane uh it comprised 15 short films each about a minute long depicting biblical scenes and interspersed with over 200 slides and a musical accompaniment of hymns and popular classics the lecture, as the army producers designated it, lasted for over two hours. And a good time was had by all. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Just as a short shout out, my friend Matt Hoffman is doing a podcast called Advance Australia Film, which is kind of doing a, a detailed blow-by-blow deep dive account of Australian cinema, starting with the very, very, very beginnings. Um, and there's a, a great section on that particular multimedia presentation um, in in his first episode so if you're interested in in the technicalities and particularities of australia's film history um definitely go and check out advance australia film excellent i find it fascinating that that's set so set up you know six years later as Gang. And it's such an oppositional force uh, already at mm. battling over what is cinema, uh, whether intentional or not. From the p- p- position we are now, we look back and we see the dominant colonial Salvation Army versus the subversive guerrilla Kelly gang. <laughs> mm. It's an interesting juxtaposition. It's interesting as well, you know, if we're speaking historically about some, some of the points w- that we were raising earlier about ideas of representation of diverse voices the way that kind of the other the conception of national cinema has so much shifted with the representation and the opportunities afforded to people who aren't just within the dominant paradigms of well in australia's case australian society and how you know over the years especially closer to today's date the idea of what isn't national australian cinema has become less of the you know aussie bloke and more literally everyone else who exists in this country and i find that find that a really interesting thing to consider when we're talking about especially ideas of a national australian cinema Mm. you know the fact that it took until rolf de heer doing 10 canoes to produce australia's first film in 2006 not uh, in english but in an Australian Aboriginal language. I believe it was in Yolngumata. Um, mm. I could be wrong. But uh, the fact that it took until 2006, a full hundred years after 
the first Australian feature to get a film made in an Aboriginal language is just like mind blowing. And perhaps this is a a quick moment to say that um, we do recognize that while we're talking about national cinema, we are talking a lot about Australian because Australian film, sorry, because we are actually all Australians. Um, so we, we try and, well, we will be discussing Australia as a example because we can't not. Um, but perhaps it's also a topic we might turn to get, turn back to at another time, perhaps depending on how things go. But, um, and I will do a disclaimer that although I may not sound it and although my accent isn't as strong as it used to be, um, I am an Australian as well, though I very much like when when we first started talking about this as a subject to discuss, I the first thing that I thought about is the fact that I very much look at Australian cinema from a very outsider sort of perspective. So by way of background, my family and I are Australian, and I do mean my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, my parents, my sister, of course. But we left Australia when I was very young. I was not quite a year old when we left. And I spent uh, 20 years living overseas, living an expat life before returning to Australia in 2008 for university. And so my experience of Australian cinema was very, perhaps quite different to you boys, um, because a lot of the time I was kind of shown these films and I very much had the brain on my brain was very much thinking in terms of this is a window into my culture. In, you know, and in quotes, oh. a window into my culture. You know, that was problematic in its own ways, depending on the film that we're talking about, which I think we'll probably get onto a bit later on. Yeah, very interesting for me personally, and I'm not sure what your what you guys experienced when you were when you first recognized these as your own nation's films. Well, I grew up. I mean, my parents, my entire family immigrated to Australia in about the late 80s from Ukraine, just before the fall of the Soviet Union. So growing up in Australia, I I kind of had a little bit of a disconnect between Australian culture and my own upbringing, kind of existing within this realm of very much an immigrant Jewish Ukrainian culture as my home culture, right? Uh, but still experiencing Australian culture through, you know, school, through whatever media happened to be coming up. Mm. So I, I almost, in a sense, also had that kind of distance between Australian culture and my growing up perception of Australian culture. Mm. Yeah, now that you mention it, I, I, I never really thought about it in that particular way very much. But, you know, as you say... These films upheld to be, you know, national films, even something like, you know, we might, I might have seen more Australian cinema in history classes mm-hmm. at high school, for example, <laughs> uh, than, than I would have been exposed to, you know, at home. So that that's an interesting area to explore as well, Australian historical cinema. Yeah, well, as someone who was predominantly raised in the American school system, I can safely say that we did not watch a single Australian film fact in terms of history australia really is more or less just a footnote unfortunately in you know in terms of a world history it's it's pretty minimal i'm afraid (laughs) my well my mum was a a 
immigrant, one of the five pound palms coming mm. across on the boat in the, the 50s. Dad was a Queenslander, so I definitely I have a, a pretty interesting collision. Dad's side, it's all, it can be, I think, second fleeters, but also is Norwegian somewhere in there. And on mum's side, it's like apparently Rob Roy is a great, 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 great uncle or something, and there's... Uh, Irish and Scottish and a whole blend of everything. Supposedly some royal bastards as well. Yeah, probably. Uh, so what you're saying is you're very, very white. I'm very, 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 very white. <laughs> and you're <laughs> also saying that out of the three of us, I'm the most Australian one here by, uh, by gen- like generationally, which is quite strange because it's just my <laughs> one grandfather of mine that's Brit. Otherwise, they're all Aussies. So that's, uh, that's a very interesting twist here. This is one of the things where when we talk about some of these Australian films that uh, Australian identity in cinema is a pretty bizarre thing. Mm. Oh, well, <laughs> it's then a maybe blending. it's all very true. <laughs> I was raised very much on a very Australian slash non-Australian diet mm. in that it was a lot of uh, British TV shows on ABC. So I was allowed to... Uh, to generally pick what we watched with uh, with a few exceptions. <laughs> Saturday night for my entire childhood into teenage years was ABC, which were varied, but for most of that it was the bill at 8.30 and we could <laughs> not miss the bill. The bill was the only staple. It was such a fixture of my life. Most people, you know, a lot of people had church on Sunday. Also, for mum, it was the bill on Saturday night. <laughs> Birds of a feather uh-huh. and, uh, you know, all these uh, heartbeat, a lot of all these, these oh, yes. English comedies and period cop shows and Hamish Macbeth. And in a twist of fate, when I was young, we would watch McGregor's Saga, which was a TV show, which I probably, <laughs> I suspect is not actually Australian, but... Well, actually, I think it was actually Australian because I think Sigrid Thornton was in. Growing up in the 90s, uh, there was, you know, the late show with the D-Generation who would go on to make numerous films, so, uh, including be associated with one of the films that we're going to talk about. and uh, But also Full Frontal, Fast Forward, those kind oh, yes. of things again. And, of course, you know, Full Frontal gave us Eric Banner, who was in Chopper, which is a really interesting film about identity, national identity in Australia, mm. um, and a few other figures like that. And so that's film-wise, though. Yeah, I think I may have said this last time that my video store only had, mm-hmm. I think, two or three subtitled films if subtitled videos and otherwise it was pretty much all either you know <laughs> italian dub stuff or american or english or whatever um but it was also pretty narrow on the australian stuff too mm. and a lot of it was the kind of stuff which as a kid i would be like hell no <laughs> <laughs> um so there was uh, definitely the, the lot of australian films which have become much more influential in my life that just weren't present so in some ways we all had very much a similar experience and i think for a lot of people especially of our generation we had that experience mm. that there was that infamous cultural cringe that we didn't Mm. to watch our own stuff and we thought that we couldn't make good films even though the rest of the world was giving a lot of films awards and a lot of our creatives were going overseas. Now we output actors, whereas in the 70s we output directors. (laughs) I I feel like that's a a common story across every every nation's cinema you know you we may have even touched on this last week of the the famous stories about no one liking Fellini in Italy or you know no one liking Bergman in Sweden Mm. (laughs) and things like that and you hear about these things and you're like what do you mean what are you talking about and then you come back here and you're like oh oh well okay hang on no one really likes Rolf to hear or 
things like that, and you kind of get it. And you hear people in Britain trashing British films. I, I remember seeing a, um, a sketch by Alexi Sale, which was this lavish musical satire sketch about uh, the state of British film. And, and you think, what do you mean you hate British film? Look at all the British films that you're producing. <laughs> um, and so I, I guess it's, it's a similar thing, because I remember there being a period in my life where that was a really dominant understanding of Australian cinema that was that was Australian cinema it was terrible it's yeah it's really interesting how much of that almost feeds into itself where mm. that narrative becomes regurgitated through the output that Australia creates by almost acknowledging that it's a bit daggy and, and that's the stuff that appeals to people I do wonder particularly in Australia because like you said I think every Every nation has its own struggles with its own representations of themselves. No one really likes to hold up a mirror at an unflattering angle and say, yep, that's still me. Um, But having said that, I I do think Australia's particular brand is is very strong in that it really doesn't like to see itself. Having spent years working in, in various cinemas, you know, you can kind of gauge how well a film is doing or not doing purely from numbers or how quickly it moves through the big cinemas into the small ones and a lot of films when I was working at Nova for example for a while a lot of the time I I did make a bit more of an effort to go and see some of the Australian produced Australian based films because for me like I said I I, I am still learning about the culture and its history and and I kind of wanted to see why are these films not getting the attention or the interest that a very average American film will get. My experience, I have to say, is that although they're not class A, top shelf quality, whatever, every one that I've seen that I can think of at this moment has had something in it that's just like this little nugget of of something that's really unique or really clever or really interesting that they managed to capture really well. The rest of it may be pretty pretty average. I mean, I think mostly my reaction coming out of those films is that, yeah, that was a good film. Not an amazing film. I'm not going to go home and start telling my family and everybody I know to go and see it. But there was always something redeeming in them. That might not be the right word, but something of interest, something of value in each one that I saw. So it's really disappointing that a lot of the time I feel like we don't even give that a try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's exactly the same kind of, oh, this wasn't amazing, but this was fine, that you get from mainstream American films. Yeah. As you say, they're the ones that top everyone's lists of must-see films, or they're they're the ones that people flock to, even though they might be just as average as... But, Mm. you know, that's the question. Why do people avoid average Australian films and go out and see average American films? Like, I would much rather support an average Australian film than an average American film. Mm. I don't know. Maybe that's just a a little bit of national pride. (laughs) (laughs) The irony, I think, is that the... I think that it's the opposite is the problem that we don't have that pride. And I think that Australia... I mean, again, a lot of these things can be said of many countries, but I know from... Australia, especially given things that have been happening in the last year, has a problem with elitism. Mm. We've always been acknowledged as having a problem with competitiveness in regards to sports (laughs) and that we have to be the best at all costs, otherwise we chuck a little hissy fit. 
Which is, is so is, at though? odds with the bloody tall poppy stuff. I know. And the, oh, we're, we're all bloody larrikins. It comes back to the Salvation Army versus Kelly gang. <laughs> <laughs> it's all there in the origin story. I think that is that a big part of it is that we, because of this sort of competitive and elitism, that unless that an Australian film has to be hitting it over the fence to, in order to, to get our attention and if it's doing anything else then we're like oh yeah but it's it's not like this or it's not like that or mm. you know it's not it doesn't have the, the all the the shininess and the the craft work and, and not to say that the the shininess and craft work of an american film is the better but it has a stronger feeling of suture for a lot of us and suture being you know the, the literally like stitching you into the film like binding you to it so that you were completely absorbed by it we do have this really interesting divide i'm saying I'm thinking too many things at once here we mm-hmm. have a really interesting divide again like we're very we're very divided culturally like in in personality and we've got these things where we love this but we hate that but they don't mm-hmm. coexist because it tends to be a real split down the middle between what films are successful being either very serious realistic dramas realistic quotation marks or super over the top hyper fantasy or comedy or such that are really amplifying archetypes you know you even see that with the in the 70s and there's there's a couple interesting periods in australian cinema that because it does tend to die after that silent period with only like there were successful films certainly but most of the, the the second world war and afterwards there wasn't much being produced locally primarily that was because it became a lot cheaper to import films from hollywood mm. than to fund films locally yeah and absolutely. so you had just this massive saturation and i think just another shout out to matt's podcast <laughs> he does go into this this a bit more but you know the there was a certain quotas that were being attempted to be put on, on cinema runners and, and royal commissions and things like that being set up. But all of that was ignored. Surprise, surprise, the royal commission being ignored. But <laughs> the cinema goers were just completely avoiding putting any sorts of quotas on their mm. on their input because, yeah, again, it was just so much cheaper to get films in from America than it was to create any local content, which is yeah. why I think... There's, there's a gap of people's almost like conception of Australian cinema from, oh yeah, History of the Kelly Gang to Picnic at Hanging Rock. There's right. 70 years when we don't know anything about our cinema, apart from sometimes some British people made some films here. Mm. Well, there's also the, uh, the sentimental bloke uh, in 1919. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got Dad and Dave yeah. films in the 30s. So there were certainly, and they tended to be leaning into this Aussie caricatures of good top blokes and comedy and country shenanigans kind of things. And then yes, then with the British, then the British come with Ealing in the the forties and fifties. Even that though is kind of tourist cinema. Yeah, certainly represents aspects of our history. The reason why they were being made here was more to be sold back home as something exotic and exciting. Yeah, the yep. travelogues, a way to travel without actually leaving your your safe yeah, town. You're, yeah, yeah, you're still operating under the Queen and what you know and familiar mm. with to a certain degree, and also the half of them had kangaroo in the title. Yeah, <laughs> and, but it's also a way for the English to start making westerns, which of course were hugely popular. That they could come to Australia oh, yeah. and make their own variations on the westerns, being a specifically American birthed genre, which is will be a fun topic one day. That'll probably be seventeen hours long, yeah, uh, because it all yeah. splinters out in so many interesting directions, like such as this, where it becomes something that 
is feeding an English desire for exoticism and for producers to create a popular genre, but it also just does the simple thing of having people learn how to make films in Australia, mm. which takes a little bit of time to really get a like you know grip the tracks. But that does start to then steamroll into the seventies and starting to make our own films and other directors coming in and bringing their experiences, such as you know Wake and Fright and Powell, uh, Michael Powell yeah. and such. I was going to mention as well that, that um, speaking of, um, you know, what we were talking about, I think St- Steph brought up the idea of viewing Australian culture from an outsider's perspective. It's so interesting that that sort of late 60s, early 70s period, so much of Australia's cinema or Aust- ideas of Australia were brought to us from, you know, other, either British people like Michael Powell, who made They're a Weird Mob, and Age of Consent to people like uh, Nicholas Rogue making Walkabout or Ted Koch, a Canadian, making Wake and Fright. Uh, right. And so, you know, it takes someone else to look in on us and tell us who we are. That's because Australia, you know, for, for most people outside of Australia, Australia is this far off and still very mystical place where it's, you know, bright and sunshine all the time and this yeah. big, beautiful desert and beautiful beaches and beautiful women and fantastic accents and all this wonderful things. You know, as far as they're concerned, it's way more interesting to be here, except for the people who are here, don't want to be here <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, that is so yeah. often, the, often the way. And I, I, so I want to just digress a little bit sideways because there's a something that's always fascinated me is the idea that America primarily doesn't have a national cinema. Mm-hmm. That it uh, really. Yeah, I remember like this being brought up one day in a lecture and I was like, huh, I'd never really thought of that because... What do you call birth of a nation? Yeah. Oh, God, you had to say it. <laughs> we'll just, <laughs> let's, I mean, let's hope it, you know. it wasn't <laughs> the birth of a nation. Yeah, they're, look, still, I mean, they're still fighting that battle. Uh, well, yeah. Yeah, look. But the, I mean, okay, fine. What are you called? Stagecoach. Uh. Well, yeah, no, they, they, it certainly is, <laughs> but it, it's... I said primarily it has shifted and changed at right. different times as much as we started this conversation with. But that's one of the really interesting things that happens with American cinema that does start to fracture national identities across all cinemas is the Second World War. Because, yeah. you know, France and Germany and Italy had these incredibly thriving cinema industries that were just, you know, any, everything, possibly, you know, even more, uh, uh, creating more product than America. But then the Second World War happens and between the occupies, occupation with a lot of creatives and artists fleeing to England or America. Or being conscripted. Uh-huh or being like conscripted and getting killed and in concentration camps and battlefields, whatever, that's a huge drain on their creative figures. Mm. You've also got then the bombing of, yeah. of, of Europe. You know, many, many studios and, and archives were destroyed. And then they're, they're all broke at the end. They're all broke because they've been strip mined by the occupying forces mm. and there's nothing left and they don't have the capabilities at that point to immediately just start making films again and that's where some, you know we see the the rise of neorealism because you know with uh, Rossellini and his war trilogy Rome Open City which was 
though more recreated in fictional settings than it appears was shot in the bombed out city germany year zero two and it was we need to be able to have this new lightweight technology cameras that we can go out in the streets and we can just film it and this is our world because there was no way of creating the huge fantasies of before in the fictionalized settings it had to reflect reality but at this time it leaves this massive vacuum and the concept of soft power is really important here in the way that you exert power in soft ways. You're not forcefully dominating. You're doing it in nice ways, you know, smoothly without people noticing. And that's where America... That's exactly what I was going to bring up in terms of, uh, in terms of mainstream dominant Hollywood as Hollywood as almost synonymous with cinema mm. and the way that that has... They were, they were allowed um, to go unchecked because... Spread they, its tentacles. Yeah, yeah. they, they were... I'll, I'll say unchecked, you say spread of tentacles. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, I'll be the polite one for a change. Yeah, that is a new one. You won't be the one to bring up tentacles for a change. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, no cannibalism this week, folks, promise. Maybe. Um, maybe. Maybe. The... Uh, but no, it was very, very specifically that the, the Hollywood was enlisted by the War Department to be producing products that would help promote American democracy and lifestyle and this way of being. Yeah. And so those films flooded into Europe and they became, the cinema, American cinema became even more about marketing a product, being the American dream, the American white goods the american dinners the american suburbs it was all about not suburbs at that time but you get the idea that this was they were broadcasting this advertisement for their future and so you get that dual thing that okay and suddenly america switched to broadcasting to an international market while they're not necessarily making any concessions to that they're still shifting away from things that would necessarily be unknown to outsiders and you also have these other powerful forces are now being emptied out that there's not an italian cinema industry or a french or german industry to speak of because it's either being destroyed or they're in america making those films and so you have there's no nothing to stop that steamroller from coming through and essentially it has stayed the dominant force for as we speak uh because there there have been Every time there has been things pushing back against it, the American uh, Hollywood system is able to absorb it. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, yep. like as we yep. said, we, we lost our directors to Hollywood or, you know, and that, that still that causes the destruction of our own national industries because if our filmmakers were staying here after they've made three or four really good films and getting better and better, then we would have more right. product that is specifically Australian That's or specifically wherever. That's a very interesting wherever. perspective, actually. Yeah, so instead we're on this constant cycle of having to produce new people and new films and new actors and such, and then we lose them again. And, that, you know, it's an reason to respect someone like Kate Blanchett who does move backwards and forwards and comes back to Australia to make indie little Australian films. And, you know, there's That's a couple true. of people who still do that. And, and But even so, it's like it's something like Mad Max. It's mm. a great yeah. shame that it couldn't be made here physically yeah. in Australia just because... It is very much an Australian film. It is so very, very Australian. But all it takes is that one little like, oh, but it wasn't shot here. And that our, our little culture, our cringe, our little, you know, ex- like acceptance of giving up 
part of our identity kicks in and we go, oh, well, it's, you know, it's an American actress. It's a, oh, actually, Shelley Sivan is South African. Oh, um, yeah. And Tom Hardy <laughs> is English. So they're all colonialists, which fits in with our ideology as well. Not themselves colonialists, but they're from colonial <laughs> empire, country, places. But it does become this thing where it's like we're drastically trying to hold on to films that are owls quotation marks but every little bit sort of tries to steal it away much like we do with stealing new zealand people (laughs) (laughs) yeah well they're they're ours when we want them otherwise they're over there um how different then just because we're kind of on this topic how different then do you think the newest mad max would be fury road would be had it been filmed here if it had been because presumably the story wouldn't necessarily have changed that much but it would be filmed presumably somewhere in the outback or in northern oh, yeah. territory it was, for example it was going to be it was going to be cooper Pedy, but then it rained for like the first time That's in 10 years right. and it bloomed with flowers and didn't look at all like an That's apocalyptic right. wasteland <laughs> but do you think that the feel of the film would have been distinctively like fundamentally different or do you think that's a kind of psychological thing that we kind of went oh that makes it okay so it doesn't really make it australian so it's fucking fantastic in regards to its national identity i don't believe it would have changed it in regard to the film that it is Mm. i believe it would have changed it because the more time for the most part especially with a really gifted group of filmmakers like they had having more time to keep working on your ideas and your concepts and your script and doing the amount of like pre-production work that they did on that, those setbacks ultimately helped it because they managed to bring it together more and more with every step until that film is the very finely honed blade that it is. And I think that it, in much ways, like a, it, that is the first two Mad Max films, and I'm not going to talk about the third one, the first two Mad Max films are the, the European sword that's just hammered with iron and steel and hot fire. And Fury Road is more the katana, the finely folded uh, slithers of steel coming together to create something that took much longer but is cutting a lot deeper. Mm. I feel like also it's not even uh, uh, the idea of that, you know, 20 years had passed since they wanted to make the film, but that even just the idea of having a budget or having the the kind of resources that buying into an American production would offer you. I, I think that's what probably draws a lot of filmmakers to go over there to create films. And it, it fundamentally alters the feel because several hundreds of millions of dollars feels <laughs> different to... Yeah several hundreds of thousands of dollars and and this is why tens of millions this is why australians should be forced to watch shot on video uh diy movies and nothing else for at least a chunk of their life because then they will appreciate what we damn well have (laughs) i know that as someone who slid off of uh all types of regular cinema that the kind of bizarro trash and power cinema that i've been watching has it hasn't made me excused, and it, it's not even forgiving necessarily. It's it's appreciating a bit more. Uh, I, I would wouldn't want to refer to Australian cinema as outsider cinema, but you, I've been so much in outside art cinema that everything else is like, yeah, that's fine. 
There's nothing wrong with that. They put in their best effort and they did a great job. Can and, I just you know, say get over that, um, <laughs> that that little ad, admon, admonishment that you just made was sounded very much like, you know, a parent being like, you will have the off-brand ketchup because oh. that is what we can afford. You will not I... have Heinz because we don't have that here or, or you know, some import brand of, of something. Ketchup you will consume is rubbish. the local stuff so you will appreciate the fine Tomato. quality when you can afford it. Tomato sauce only. Ketchup is sugary rubbish. Oh, sh- whatever. But in a way, that's what happens to people who are like, oh, well, I, I've out, I have a, a, a grown to appreciate American cinema because it's so lavish. Oh. <laughs> You're not allowed to watch Transformers. You must only watch Transmorphers. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we're not going there yet. We're not going there yet. No, but I, I think this. <laughs> right. But this is also. I've definitely said that if I ever had kids, they would be forced to watch Experience Cinema in the order it was made. Oh God. <laughs> so I think they'd hit the 80s. About so the when time they're they babies, they start with 1906 and yeah, yeah. 1896. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be interesting. And by the time they're 100 years old, they'll be able to watch a film from from 2006, yeah. which will be by then more than 100 years well, old. But 2006 was about the time that the grey market really kicked in as a, as, as a, a film's area, specifically dealing with elderly uh, audiences. So they'll be fine. Right. One of the interesting things you mentioned at some point in there is, is one of the big differences is, and this is another thing, like, again, coming back to, to Americans don't really have a national cinema. Like, they certainly do. And, and African-American cinema is, is one of the key parts of that. that it, it's, it's actually one of the things that made me realize that was how little african-american uh, or black cinema from america was getting released here mm. such as the medea films which are some of the most successful american films of the last 20 years almost no release in australia and so that was that oh well that's a national cinema because we're not paying attention <laughs> and they're not broadcasting it right but it was also that we hear americans talk about films in relation to their identity and their history but they don't talk about it in relation to national cinema Right. It's much more the specific idea of who they are as to how does this cinema represent our cultures. And I think part of that is when we're not alone in this, but we're definitely one of the, the, the main countries, I think, that has, has long had this as the primary model is that moving past that healing period into the 60s and 70s was the development of the Australian Film Commission, which is a government-funded body that would support and fund and help release uh, locally and internationally uh, Australian film. And it has changed names over the years and it has had lots of different variations and it ebbs and flows in its power and funds, but it is still the primary way that films get made in Australia. It's very rare for a film to come through without any funding at all from uh, the Australian government. And so we have this idea that the government produces Australian films and they had it written into the, their statement of intent or such that it was the films must represent uh, or relate to Australian national culture and identity so suddenly it very specifically becomes we are producing films that represent us Mm. but that of course is like well (laughs) what is us at the time we were still living under the white australia policy which was extremely anti-immigration and anti-first nations and anti just about anything but white people which this is still our perspective and we definitely need more perspectives from all those areas but at that time that was you know that's when jack thompson and blonde blue-eyed australian comes up you know the original chris hemsworth 
uh, there's so many figures like that that it's just such a narrow slither representation and so and a lot of those films are still questioning and they're still pushing back you know i think of sunday too far away a jack thompson film about sheep shearers that still feels pretty revolutionary and aggressively anti-authoritarians and anti-systems of power for the most part they are as i said earlier the kind of films in the video store which at that age i was like no thank you because they're very orientated to what would have been called at the time art house or art cinema and they were though there were some hits internationally they were primarily being outsourced through film festivals throughout the world Many of them were hits here, but again, we come back to that parallel. As this was happening as the dominant, this is Australian cinema, it's also the time of Ozploitation, which I think the first big hit of was, well, I know Adventures of Barry McKenzie was very early on, uh, but they were mostly sex comedies uh, that were the early Alvin hits. Purple. Of Alvin Purple, um, Felicity, things like that that were the first, Stork were the, the, the first, and quite a few of them were they're very political sex comedies. They're not particularly aggressively political or interestingly political, but you could tell that the people making them had gone to university and studied politics. Mm. <laughs> oh. uh, it doesn't necessarily... You, can't, you go back and watch them now and they're a bit of a, a, an abyss in some regards to that, but that was the, the Ozploitation strand came out of, yeah, politicised, sexualised comedies and then split off into Mad Max and turkey shoot and fog dreaming and all the other assorted with patrick and a bit more into the genres we're more familiar with these days and that's again the same dichotomy that i mentioned earlier the salvation army versus the kelly gang <laughs> well, it's interesting in the way that it, it kind of developing this national image through screen you know again makes me think of the idea of outsiders but this time outsiders inside of the country Hmm. Where, where it's, you know, people looking at these screens and these images and, and these ideals and ideas being portrayed and being like, well, this isn't, this isn't my national identity. This isn't who I identify with in this country that I live in and have lived in before these people. Or, you know, even th- I've come here and this country has vilified me. And how am I supposed to accept this as the idea of national identity when they're pushing me down and then they're pushing themselves up onto the screen? Yeah, that, that, that's what always fascinates me about all of these, I suppose, almost historical accounts of national cinema is how much it, uh, how much it really goes to the core of what isn't written in, in, in history because it was mm. ignored or because of who wrote the history. Well, like I said, when as someone who was, at least in the in the first part of my life, was growing up and going to school at international schools and then um, American schools, history was history class, I should say, was pretty narrow-minded in terms of what was being taught. I mean, European history had some representation, not a lot. Asia, even less so. Australia, Australia got drawn on the map and sort of pointed to, but that's because it's pretty easy to find on <laughs> on the map um, and that's really about it I think this is kind of a good point to kind of segue into one of the films that we said we we would talk about which is The Dish which obviously talks about Australia's role in getting man to the moon which until I saw that film I had no idea whatsoever that there was 
any involvement other than general cooperation, which I assumed most nations would have had, you know, that weren't behind the, the Soviet bloc at the time. And for me in particular, I remember that as really being one of my first experiences of an Australian national film, because as I've, I've said before, we left Australia when I was one. So apart from a few trips back over the years to visit friends, well, to visit family, really not friends, my experience of Australia was basically non-existent, bar a few windows. One of them being this. Uh, we actually saw it in a small art house cinema in, in Houston, which is where we were living at the time. I remember, because I was, I was about nine when it came out, so I remember being in the theatre. I remember it being fairly empty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember there being a couple of clusters, and during the process of watching uh, the movie, you could definitely tell who were the Americans and who were the Australians watching the film because of where and when they laughed and how they laughed. Now that I, when I was reflecting on, on the dish in particular, I reflect on the irony of the fact that I was watching it in Houston, near Space Center Houston, aka NASA's headquarters, watching what happened <laughs> in Australia, my home nation, if you like, and, and how they were involved. And so perhaps it's quite apt that my earliest and one of my enduring understandings of Australia comes through, you know, a very American kind of focus yeah i thought that was a, a strange recognition uh and also i have to say that yeah. at the time my other big touch point for australian representation was sea change so uh huh. you know for me connections there were tom long and and kevin harrington i don't know i thought they were you know big big names in the in australia's realm of actors and my first experience with Sean Michaela, for example, as a bumbling love interest to one of the main characters later on. And yeah, very strange, but there it is. <laughs> That's quite funny to think of him like that, and especially in the context we have him now in his I very know. many forms. For those who don't know, Sean Michaela uh, was in Full Frontal at the same time as Eric Banner, a comedy sketch show. And yeah, Michaela comes from, he's a lawyer. Yeah, he I went into so. comedy yeah. and then sideways into a lot of other things. And now he's basically one of the few uh, actual journalists we have in Australia, despite having a comedy sketch show about politics. It's very strange. It's weird. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole different other political story. But yeah, it's I funny. Know. Was, was it um, a Tom Long passed away a couple of years yeah. ago? Yeah. No, he? like in the last year, I think. Oh, he yeah, was. 4th of was, January. Yeah. yeah, he was really young as well. It was very. Um, I have to say, when I when I heard about it, it, it there was a little stab in my heart because it was just a, oh. Yeah, aww. he was thirty one, and here we go. Just to add to our points, he was born in Boston. Was he <laughs> in the United oh. States? <laughs> oh well, that's even more interesting. Yeah, very very strange. But uh, yeah, the, the, that was directed by um, Rob Sitch, who also made The Castle, which is a, yes, probably a oh. more famous Australian film. But is it though? Because I, I. Don't I know a lot of I know the castle is talked a lot as very representative, but I don't know. Perhaps it was the confusion of a non-Australian watching it that that it didn't do very well outside of well, actually, Australia. I I, I yeah I, I apparently it did reasonably well outside of Australia, but I I actually 
just looking at the data was released was in 2000 uh i was not in australia then that was my one period overseas yeah. i got off to vienna so i actually mm. missed the dish primarily and i know i saw it on back on, when i got back on video and then saw it again i think early on when we met steph yep definitely. but otherwise it is a bit of a gap for me and i know that then doing studying australian cinema at university there is a lot more written about the castle than there is the dish. Yeah. Which, as I came back to thinking about the dish, I thought was very interesting also because a lot of the castle is talked about very much in regards to our identity, but also in regards to politics surrounding land and place and ownership. Oh, yeah. Because at that time there was the um, Mabo... uh, court hearings going on to do with uh, traditional uh, ownership and, and the, right, the rights yeah. of First Nations people in Australia. Which is an ongoing discussion that we are very, in, in, still ongoing have. Everywhere. Yeah. But it was very much cast as being like almost the the, the colonising of even that battle in that it told the story of an Australian family who were very white and very Australian who were fighting for their land mm. and their ownership wow. over it. And so it was quite fascinating to see it considered in regards to taking some power away from the the First Nations and Aboriginal people here in Australia. Mm. Yeah. By colonising their story, essentially, and colonising the narrative that they were attempting to regain at that point. Yeah. But then that's interesting because it is very internalised. It's very much it's only about us. Mm. And it still does feed in that larrikin, like, anti you know, authoritarian aspect because The Castle, for those who don't know, is a film about a family fighting against having their land seized in order to expand an airport. Uh, so that's obviously big business versus little fellow kind of thing. And it, um, it's not Goliath. a fantastic house from memory. It's a pretty uh, <laughs> ramshackle... I don't know. The more nostalgia goes on, <laughs> the worse houses look that they build now. Mm-hmm. The more housing prices go up. Well, I guess that's true. <laughs> It was fascinating then to think about the dish because the dish is about our place in the bigger world. Yeah. It's about our role in getting off of the planet, of being in the universe, of connecting with something outside of ourselves. And that is, you know, very deeply thematic to the film, but also ties in with an idea of a a national cinema or a transnational, international cinema and and the way that globalisation was accelerating at the point in 2000 as the internet arrives. Yeah. As we start to feel these stronger connections to the outside world and information begins flowing back and forwards easier, we suddenly have this historical comedy drama which is literally about the flow of information backwards and forwards across the world and into space and back <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's it's an interesting one for me because it, it's one of the core films from my family and you know we all quote it to each other just in you know part of the weird things that your family does that you don't realize is weird until you're not with just your family if someone else walks in and goes what the hell are you guys talking about (laughs) yeah so that's one of our core foundations as a family for me watching it it's an interesting one because i i very much looked at it you know if you think of completely naive with with no real comprehension or understanding of what is in quote required of someone from my country and how they communicate and what they say language was a particularly interesting one for me Admittedly, the dish, because it has that American lens, because you've got the American in in and amongst all the Australians having to explain everything to them, it's a bit watered down and a bit dumbed down, which helped me a lot, I admit. <laughs> Language for me was one of those things that it kept kind of popping up to me, like, 
to wonder, is this how people still communicate? Because obviously it's set in the 60s, so there's make some allowances for the fact that it's a historical. It's not, it's a film made in the late 90s, but about the 60s, so there's a bit of a gap there. But for me, it was very much wondering, you know, is this a true representation of, of a, quote, regular Aussie bloke, you know, the average guy? And I don't have an answer for that because I wasn't here in the 60s, but I guess, I don't know. Unless you want me to call my mum and ask her right now. But even <laughs> so, she was uh, only 13 or so. There's certainly, yeah, as you said, the, the concession to internationality with the casting of Sam Neill being yes. a New Zealand huh. actor who is recognised globally and probably often, at least until he started Instagramming from his farm in New Zealand, like a truly oddball New Zealander he is. <laughs> A lot of people probably weren't entirely aware of his origins. No. The American is, is Patrick Warburton, who a lot of people would know for Seinfeld and various other things, a fantastic comedy actor. But otherwise, yeah. The, the Tick. Yeah, The Tick. Oh, yeah, still have to watch that. Otherwise, it is like a very, very Australian cast of people that if you're grown up in Australia, you're like, oh, it's that guy, oh, it's that guy, oh, it's that guy, oh, yeah. And actually, it's funny how many of these, as I look at the cast, there's a lot of faces here that I'm like, oh, yeah, you, you can see when Australian cinema industry is doing badly because these are faces who you start to then see pop up in commercials on TV because oh, there yeah. aren't any other jobs going. <laughs> and see, this is my frame of reference for contemporary Australia as well because I'll be watching an ad or an ad for a TV show or something and go, oh, yeah, it's that person from, and again, sea change because we watched it so many times, I recognise every side you know, small character who has like one line. And I go, oh yeah, it's that person from Sea Change from the first season. And I just thought everybody watched that show. I thought everybody knew that show as in-depth as I did. Apparently that's not the case. <laughs> well, yeah. And of course, Sea Change being the series that gave us uh, David Wenham as well. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, that definitely made him uh, a star locally. And Pre-Lord of the Rings, pre-300, pre-whatever yeah. else. Oh, I just shuddered thinking yeah, of that okay. voice he puts on in 300. Oh. Yeah, it does feel very much like it's designed to be a portal and it does have the the, the character identification, the, sorry, the audience identification character. Yeah. Which I generally hate in films. You know, I, I think of Hellboy, the original Hellboy with Von Perlman and the worst thing about that film is that the studio made him had a character that's not in the comic books or anything and is an awful, purely audience identification character and we don't freaking need it's it not the agent guy yeah oh yeah, right. he's so blah and bad and awful we especially fantasy sci-fi genre horror audiences we don't need an identification character and i don't think we always need an identification with it works going into here, national cinemas but it does work a little bit easier because it is a bit more in real tangible especially in comedies because it does allow a easier comedy but i don't know, i guess growing up a monster horror nerd and you've got the guy going oh look at that thing instead of being like hell yeah <laughs> actually it's del toro it comes to mind because del toro is one of these international filmmakers who was bouncing backwards and forwards across borders to make one in his homeland and one in Hollywood. And they had very different flavours, but over the time they kind of started to come closer together and his films got maybe not better overall, but his American films definitely got better for bringing more of his own uh, culture into it. Mm. If you want to talk about transnational identities, something like Pacific Rim, which I think very much represents his transnational identity as a horror fan and genre fan and monster nerd. 
Yeah. Because if anything, the identification figures in Pacific Rim are the science geeks. Charlie Day's character with his kaiju tattoos, where he's Mm. geeking out over them and how awesome they are. But even that, he then draws attention to that and questions it by having him geeking out over a monster that killed the other character's brother. <laughs> and like, so he suddenly goes from this fantasy of that and then pushing back into a reality and giving us a stronger, more complicated form of identification through that than you get in something like Hellboy where it's just, hey, check out this young white boy who doesn't seem to have a personality. Mm. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Australia has long struggled with its own identity. I always found it truly fascinating that one of the biggest developments in film in Australia in the 90s was the building of Fox Studios Australia in Sydney because it was a brand new world-class studio uh, environment to do a lot more than we had been able to do previously. Moving back, as I said, to the studio of creating these fantastic worlds and the first two films that were made there were... Dark City and Moulin Rouge. (laughs) I I think it was in that order. I think Dark City was first and then Moulin Rouge. And these are films much like Mad Max Fury Road that you can look at and not realise that it's Australian at all unless you know all those little side actors who are doing their best to not sound Australian. Yeah. (laughs) Thinking about it, and you know, the director, Baz Luhrmann, Australian, uh, Alex Proyas, direct Dark City, is Australian. He actually comes from... I think it was a Greek heritage. His parents immigrated when he was young. I don't know what Baz Luhrmann's background is. I'm not a Baz Luhrmann fan. Let's just say it here and now. And I haven't seen Will and Ruse in 15 years. And it's one of the few films to ever give me a headache. So I can't talk about it so much. <laughs> but I, know, I do know that a big part of it is to do with identity and connections between people, which feeds into a big part of our Australian history. But I know that Dark City specifically being a film in which a sculpted landscape environment is consistently transformed, altered, controlled, manipulated, people's memories are erased and replaced and all of these kind of things are going on. It's like, oh, yeah, of course that's an Australian film. That film is 100% like about Australia and our national identity and how it keeps shifting and changing and even the fear that we might have, which then comes back, things like Down Under with the, the, the collision between cultures and racism of how we can be afraid of what you feel like you've lost. Uh, and I think the film tackles that very specifically in, in genre terms, not necessarily stating it explicitly in, in regards to tackling it, but I think that it is about coming to terms with the passing of eras and times, generations, places, and trying to create something bigger and brighter, which again is still based on a memory. It's still based on something for the past. I just found that so fascinating, this sort of this manufactured landscape of a film. If people talk about Australian films, it's absolutely one of my top three, not just as a film, but in regards to how it deals with the concept of Australian identity in national cinema. It's it's interesting because I think like you were saying, talking about looking back and sort of reflecting, I I don't know why, but when we first started to talk about nationalism and I first started thinking about Australian films, the first ones that were coming to mind are the ones that are very set at a specific time. So, I mean, we mentioned The Dish, which is obviously set in the late 60s, and even Sea Change is 
irrevocably 90s, although it was the time that it was made in, but I was trying to think of some other films that kind of came to mind. Looking for Alla Brandy is another one that's very, very much set in the 90s. There was another one I was mm. thinking about the other day. Chopper that I... as well. I don't think you've seen Chopper, have you? I, I, I don't think so. I think we talked about it, but I don't know that I've actually seen it. BMX Bandits. Mm. <laughs> very yeah, 80s. Yeah, that's sort of film. Yeah. yeah. Kids Ausploitation by Brian Trenchard Smith. They made a number of our key Ausploitation films. Uh, the Dressmaker. Yeah, Dressmaker is a very Beautiful interesting film. blending of genres and styles of an Australian Western in a very truly unique way. It's interesting to draw that distinction between films that are set in not the era that they were filmed in, but a, a past era, and the the way that that speaks to ideas of national identity and the way that a lot of Australia's national identity has been built through these historical myths. Yes. Even, you know, taking something like Breaker Morant, mm -hmm. which uh, I haven't seen, but <laughs> I remember being shown like five minutes of and again, like history class in high school. But the idea that this film, which theoretically is meant to be some kind of, you know, anti-authority testament, inevitably becomes enshrined in this uh, Australian ideal of the military hero and the wasn't even played by an Australian, um, but <laughs> just this this idea of the sort of the glorified Aussie battler and things like that, and the way that you have to dig into the past to push that, I guess, national agenda. Yeah. Versus something that's taken in the the space that it exists in, or rather the time that it exists in which often acts more as, like, I think what we were talking about earlier, about an, an unconscious pushing forward of a certain image just because it happens to be representing itself. Yeah, I um, somewhat deliberately, also somewhat not deliberately, last night I watched for the first time Sapphires, um, <laughs> which if you... I won't comment on the quality of the narrative per se, but again, set during the Vietnam War... I found it a bit more interesting because of the fact that it's a story about a group of Aboriginal sisters who, through their own talents uh, and a bit of help from an uh, Irish immigrant, are able to realize their dream and leave their country home to, to sing for the troops. And I kind of find it interesting as well because, again, as that outsider perspective, my understanding of Australian history is virtually non-existent. So when I first came here and learning about the mistreating of indigenous groups was, first of all, horrifying, and also something that I kind of needed to educate myself on a bit. And I have to admit, I haven't done a great job of that, and that's something that I'm currently actively attempting to change. I watched top end wedding not that long ago again not a great film but it still fits that it's a non-white australian story but still has white representation in it and i've started reading a fantastic book called the yield by uh, an aboriginal um, writer tara june winch a book that was only released this year and again has excerpts that basically are attempting to define aboriginal words in a context that a non-Aboriginal person can understand. And I just find it really interesting, that lack of representation and the sadness of that lack of representation as well. 
we have to be careful now as we are making a more variety of films that we aren't just doing what Ealing did to us and coming to a different culture because it's different and quotation marks exotic. Mm. Uh, that it can be easy to do that. But then the flip side of that is, well, you still have to be able to find, figure out ways of getting people developing skills and making their own stories, telling their own stories. And I'm not just, I'm talking about anybody in anywhere in the world. Mm. Well, and recognising talent, just the acting talent as well. It's, wow. it's not necessarily about making high quality films, that that becomes its own kind of exclusionary aspect. It's like a true equality is when everybody can make bad films and still keep making films <laughs> if they're trying hard enough or they want to or whatever. It's, you know, it's in the... Absolutely. That's great. That's great. Yes, we all should have the equal chance to make crap films. <laughs> well, it's true because there's so, so many so many people who try to make a film fail for whatever reason and are completely shut out of the industry forever. <laughs> You know, the bar for a white man to fa- to to be shut out of a, an industry is so much higher than the bar for literally anyone else. You look at how many failures of films that that white men are com- continually allowed to make until the studios are like, ah, oh, maybe not. Uh, when compared with like one film that is set up to fail, if if a if a woman or a person of color were to make the same sorts of films that would be set up to fail and then that failure would be used against that person to shut out an entire demographic from making films or making any sorts of art. There's an interesting fact that came out of England in the early 2000s. Part of the reason why the English film industry is very strong is a section of the national lottery is funneled towards the cinema industry and it's, Mm -hmm. it's it's a brilliant way to fund cinema and we really should do that here but of course we don't. The, the BFI did a study in the early 2000s and discovered it was something like 70 to 80% of first-time filmmakers in the previous 15 years had never had the opportunity or made another feature film. That's a massive brain drain. That's a massive talent drain. That, that's like they've done the hard part making the first film. Right. They have more skills and knowledge. It's like the, the chances of making a better or more successful film are higher because they've gotten one under the, the belt yet we're not supporting them. Coming back to what you were talking about in terms of like the danger of exoticizing particular underrepresented cultures, I think, you know, the key to not, to that not happening is letting people tell their own stories, I suppose, mm. rather than coming and trying to tell someone else's story. Mm. Whenever that comes up now, I think of the third Thor film, the Taika Waititi directed film, Maori and something ancestry, I can't remember what, what the other one. Jewish. That's right, Jewish Maori background. That is an interesting combination. Yeah, and you watch the third Thor, uh, and it's just like Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, that's that's such a like that feeds into so much to do with Taika Waititi's sort of background and New Zealand identity and all this. Da, 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 da. And then it's like I oh, know he didn't have anything to do with the script; it already been written. There's two other guys who wrote <laughs> it, so and it was just like oh oh sweet. <laughs> but then it, he he may not have written it, but the, he had that awareness that he was able to draw those strands out and make give them the emotional, political, cultural maturity and awareness that they needed. And then in someone else's hands, like, it's not really at the fore. Mm. Whereas in Taika Waititi's Thor Ragnarok, it's like, oh, this feels like a film about cultures that have constantly moved and displaced and how they deal with that. 
Yeah. In support of what you were just saying, Belchuk, was that the idea that writing or being able to tell your own story is, I think, always has to be the preference, because otherwise you open yourself up to a very ugly can of worms of writing about a group that you perhaps think you know or think you can represent without necessarily doing all of the research that you perhaps should. But, you know, you kind of get into murkier and murkier waters of the risk of being inauthentic. Yeah, and then you collide with yeah. the gatekeepers, be exactly they... Exactly right. ...Hollywood producers or... Not gov- even Hollywood, or government, just public. Uh, just the public, because as soon as they find out that it's not, you know, an authentic story, they're going to just rake you over the coals. Yeah, that I know that true. there's a, a big surge at the moment, because my husband, his second passion is writing, and there's always a lot of discussions going on about men writing female characters or and you know that's just basis on gender that has nothing to do with different nations or different cultures and how problematic that can be in just just the onslaught of just people just constantly having a go because how dare they step outside their own bubble Mm. you know i think this is a, a big problem it actually comes back to auteur theory, that auteur theory is important because it arises to draw attention to a different problem. But in being, you know, the the warrior fighting that battle, it then is not so well suited to fighting battles afterwards. Uh, that's a kind of bad metaphor, but sure. <laughs> but then, you know, something also like the Bechdel test in talking about in representation and, and women is that there's the pushback against the Bechdel test. And it's like... There's nothing that there are issues with it that will need to be addressed. But again, the Bechdel gesture was coming up out of a vacuum of dialogue in relation to that and countering a very specific problem. And so the first step is often wobbly. It's often not quite there. It takes further steps down that path. Coming back to the transformation over the time, we can look at cinema and see how drastically we've changed as a culture and an identity in just 30, 40, even 10 years. And yet at the same time, we're right now, as a whole species, we're desperately trying not to change in a lot of ways. Mm. And we're really mm. struggling to deal with how we reflect rather than react to change or difference or requests to be recognized in different ways. And so instead Mm. of, we've got lots of instances where we make that first step and then that step becomes it. Mm. Like auteur theory. Yeah. Yeah, Like that auteur theory is still the only response to auteur theory really uh, in, in, in broad um, known circles is to, disregard auteur theory rather than to try and go well no how do we move beyond it into something that still has it as a recognized aspect of cinema and same with the Bechdel test it's like how do we go beyond the Bechdel test to be even more open and embracing and illustrative of of where there are pluses and minuses I think that's the same conversation we keep coming back to with national identity in a lot of ways there's numerous reasons why it kind of either stops, starts, or has ground to a halt altogether. I suggested recently that New Zealand is struggling at the moment with a, a second wave with COVID that hopefully will come to a grinding halt very soon. Mm. But I did suggest that if they do manage to get it under control and they get their quarantine stuff absolutely locked down, they should be opening up to filmmakers and getting films produced because 
they could become the film center of a COVID world. Yeah, absolutely. And I am perfectly okay with, at least at this stage, in response to the dominant ideologies and forms that we've had, I am 100% okay with New Zealand becoming the transnational broadcaster of cinema for at least a little bit of time. So if it's Bollywood and Hollywood, what does New Zealand become if it became an epicenter? I don't. Let's just imagine an entirely separate thing and move beyond that. <laughs> Fair enough. Wita Productions. Well, oh, like, we yeah. can move past that too, probably. <laughs> and actually, a bit of this year, I've been going back and watching some of the really early New Zealand films, which is, you know, 80s. It's not that early, late 70s, mid 80s. And I, I would say quite comfortably that they were producing better films in Australia at that time. I think their, their films are. Of a quality, you mean? I think quality is probably about the same, but just in what they were willing to engage with, the concepts that they're dealing with, the willingness to confront complication and not necessarily trying to broadcast one identity or one perspective or have an objectivity. It's quite the opposite. It's like they're constantly fighting with their own subjectivity and their own position in the world. And it, it's it's so remarkable to watch when you've grown up with Australian cinema, which either is just n- not concerned with that or is trying to say, this is Australia. Mm. Um, so you, would you say they're more successful at a national cinema in representing, oh, representing sorry, lots of different oh, groups? Uh, I think that looking at them, I, what I know of New Zealand from that period and even now, I think that they do a better job of creating the kinds of films which at the time may not have felt especially New Zealand but in retrospect go point a lot to their national culture and character and history okay then there's a couple of sci-fi dystopia kind of films and one of them I won't mention which one but you should watch all of them anyway from the (laughs) 80s what are the particular the navigator? Oh, I just I just rewatched that. That is astonishing. That film. That is a, just astonishing. It's something like that is what, at least uh, aesthetically, is what uh, Coppola would be trying to do a few years later with Dracula, and they were just like hitting it out of the park. Or Kaz, like, look at our like film that's a mashup of a kid's film and Marketa Lazarova. <laughs> and you're like, what brutal like metal Eastern European darkness and horror with a time-travelling kids film. I'm like, yes, yes, I am here for all of this. But even that, that is exactly, that's New Zealand, like so much more being open to embracing the different strands of its history and identity, which didn't begin for them until the 70s. But I think that because they were able to have that internal dialogue, you know, and a lot of it in with New Zealand came out from the Springbok tour uh, as being a response to apartheid and A lot of New Zealanders were very anti the South African Springbok team coming to New Zealand for the whatever the rugby Rugby game championship thing is. Showing my sports knowledge. We're not sports people here, everyone. I could talk about sports from a political, cultural, historical context. But we're not sports people here. But yes, there was a big social movement, political movement, protests, and it was this major thing. It caused a start of a change and a dialogue. I watched a film called Utu that is colonial, Maori, Western, historical, kind of spaghetti-ish Western thing. I don't, it's just such a collision of different, like it's got a bit of the 
Italian spaghetti western of over the topness and splatteriness and like you know a character builds a giant four-barreled shotgun that's so Italian spaghetti western with their obsession with weird weapons and the fact that he can use it to blow somebody across the room in a ridiculous non-realistic way but then going along with that those elements is very intense painful emotional history then people sitting around having a dialogue and in some ways it's not entirely a one-sided dialogue the outcome is known what the dialogue will be but even just that is i've not seen this anywhere else mm. i have not seen that film anywhere else and at the film i mentioned before the dystopia one the people alone and after the end of everything possibly and when they finally meet somebody else they hug and you're like oh this is great <laughs> I love New Zealand cinema. <laughs> we wouldn't hug in Australia, but we, we might now, but in the 80s there wouldn't have been any hug. I really hope that they can come back around to that kind of cinema because a lot of those directors who made such powerful, strong, confident New Zealand films then went to America. In the case of Vincent Ward, he was meant to do Alien 3. Oof, he would have made an incredible Alien 3, but of course that went belly up and he did watch Dreams May Come and then largely disappeared. You know, even his New Zealand films are not readily available for the most part after that. I can't think of his name now, but the fellow who made Hutu ended up making a lot of sequels. He did like Under Siege 2, things like that. He made a heap of sequels in the 90s to bad action films or good bad action films. <laughs> That's another topic. Yeah, and so then again, it's that voice has been swallowed up. It's had the uniqueness removed from it, the identity. And it, it's like, oh, that's that's a real shame ongoing problem but just on one last thought in regards to Australian cinema because we've had been talking quite a while here yeah. I had a thought recently because what is it with Australian cinema and junkies and serial killers slash brutal murders because we do a lot and not so much with the junkies anymore but the 90s especially and early 2000s there's a lot of junkie oriented like films about junkies the mule yeah even the mule has a, the drug <laughs> aspect these are films that have government funding Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but think that the ongoing culture war in Australia and instead of banning the films or instead producing films that portray the, the lower economic uh, level Australians as junkies and murderers. <laughs> the poor in Australia don't get to be bushrangers anymore. We're just junkies and murderers. Thoughts? Um... <laughs> I, I, I guess <laughs> I, I'd never, I'd never really thought of that. I mean, I, I mean, it's weirdly one of the tropes that seems to come up with when talking about Australian funded films, um, is incest. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but, um, what that says about our national identity, that's, that's one of the things that a lot of people have, have brought up as being something that's consistently, uh, appearing in Australian films. I don't think I've seen a single Australian film that has featured incest in this a is, prominent I was about to say, I don't think I'm watching the same films as you guys are if this is going Yeah, I, I don't know, but, but multiple people have pointed out that, like, it, some form of incest <laughs> ends up being uh, a, a key identifier of Australian, mm. like, funded cinema the the first film that came to mind is a cannibal film that does have incest in it so uh well there you go you snuck in a cannibal into the episode actually yeah. I, think, <laughs> I think well cannibalism and incest in horror cinema does tend to often go hand in hand 
Um, oh, ho, ho. But, uh, we'll talk about the relationship of cannibalism to puns at a late date. Oh, will oh, we? Hey, uh, uh, why does Edward Woodward have so many D's in his name? I don't know. Why does Edward Woodward have so many D's in his name? He asks, knowing full well what the answer is. <laughs> because he'd be Iwaua. I don't get it. <laughs> Edward Woodward's in Breaking Morant, so that was a delayed joke. Moving on. Um, <laughs> that may also need to be cut. But no, absolutely not. It's one of the best jokes ever. Um, okay. Makes no sense. It's great. You should love it, Ben. Um, <laughs> the, I, I do. I do. I just I heard it a lot many years ago. Oh, okay. Along with the Edward Woodward joke of, of the Edward Woodward sounds like a fart in a bath. <laughs> What? Uh, anyway. uh, okay, folks, we well and anyway. truly digressed here. Yeah, no, um, I laughed at the incest thing yeah. because there was that time, like, was it two years ago, I think, where my partner at the time had never heard of Flowers in the Attic. I don't know what that is. V.C. Andrews, it was this hugely popular book from huh. the 80s, and they made it a film with, I think, the woman who played Nurse Ratchet. Louise Fletcher. Total, like, romance pulp trash. But all the romance is incest. <laughs> like, oh. it's one of those things that I actually, as I was telling uh, uh, this person about it, I had to be like, no, wait, I'm going to Wikipedia this because I, I never saw it and I never read the books. But it was like, I need to confirm that this really happened. And it's one of those things you go back, as someone who grew up through the 80s and 90s, it's like looking back and now you're like, wait, yeah. Because he made like wrote four of these books about this family and it's intergenerational and it just keeps going on and on and they were like parents and sisters and brothers and these were hugely successful books that were read by people of all ages. There were a lot of people under 18 reading those books. And it's like, yeah, I've heard people on podcasts was like, I was 14 when I read those and didn't like, you know, like you go, oh, it's wrong, but you don't like realized and now you go look back and go what the fuck anyway so we like walked into i pulled out the wikipedia page and ended up reading the blurb the detailed blurbs for every one of the books to my partner at the time and it triggered something in the universe then for like eight months like almost every other film we watched had incest as a subplot or main focus and it was just like what has happened like we, we broke something in the universe and it's just like he said its name us. too many times. Yeah, and it exactly. Oh, it was incredible. <laughs> and like, admittedly, part of it that was when we were both working on the Paris Cinema Festival, and so we were watching a lot of really bizarre, strange genre film cinema from all around the world. And that period, it was really, really bizarre how many times it came up. And then I can't remember what it was. I, I did something like broke the curse. What was it? Oh, I can't even remember. I feel like I, I like read something or s- watched a film or something. That you like, said it backwards enough Yeah, times. that it pushed back against it and then it was just like, and then I didn't see another incest film for like months and months and months and I was like, oh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> We've definitely rambled long enough. Uh, we're going to do a brand new thing section that is brand new, not unlike the rest of the podcast because we're all shiny and brand new. Yay. Each week, a film that is readily available on the internet, on YouTube or Vimeo or some such, that is free and out there and unusual, that somehow ties into our topic. 
The film that I was thinking about uh, that I want to suggest for YouTube this week is AKA Serial Killer. Ryakushu Renzoku Shashatsuma. We apologize in advance for anyone we've offended so with the mispronunciation. So sorry. I'm so, if I just say the English title, I feel like I'm being a lazy cheat because I <laughs> am. I had all these notes here on German stuff, and I, I like living in Vienna. I can totally do German. I was going to be like, yeah, this week I'm going to like pronounce the shit out of these, and then we didn't mention German cinema almost at all. Another time. So, AKA Serial Killer, uh, 1969. It's directed, written, produced, and narrated by Maceo Adachi. He was uh, quite an important figure in revolutionary and transgressive cinema. He's one of the few revolutionary guerrilla filmmakers who actually was a revolutionary guerrilla and spent some time in prison in uh, Europe as part of the Red Army. He worked most often as a writer and he wrote for Koji Wakamatsu and uh, Nagisa Oshima. Koji, uh, Koji Wakamatsu was a producer on AKA Serial Killer. He's known, he's a highly prolific transgressive filmmaker and one of Japan's key transgressive filmmakers, uh, known for such classics as The Embryo Hunts in Secret, Go Go Second Time Virgin, Violated Angels, all written by Adachi. And the cinematographer on AKA Serial Killer is uh, Yotaka Yamazaki, who has lensed numerous Hirokazu Koreeda films. I know he's an art house darling, but I have not watched any of his films yet, so I'll get there one day. It was made against the backdrop of recent student uprisings that have been shown live on TV in graphic detail and happened across two days. Actually, only learned about recently, and it's interesting that that's 69 when so much upheaval was going on, especially with the youth versus the establishment. The reason why we chose this film, it's the first feature film directly formulated in relation to Fukiron, translates as landscape theory. And this was the idea that the revolutionary cinema at the time was primarily working and focusing on people and individuals or even groups uh, that had identity. The people who worked to develop this theory of landscape, people like Adachi and Koji Wakamatsu, uh, want to, they believed that it was more important to strip away those individual identities, that they kind of came and went, and that they weren't necessarily the figures that they might affect change, but they weren't necessarily what shaped people and that it was the landscapes and the way the landscapes worked on people and there's quite an interesting topic i'll put a link up to a great article which ties it in with crime scene photography and walter benjamin and all these other interesting aka serial killer is a documentary it chronicles the the life of nageyama norio who was a 19-year-old who committed a string of gun murders in japan in 1968 so it's a true crime documentary, but it has no characters. The only people you see in it are people wandering the streets because it is the camera doesn't always stay in one place, but it is generally depicting various places in Japan as Adachi narrates the journey of this young man because he goes across all of Japan. But the footage doesn't necessarily match up with where he is talking about in his life and there's a strange abstract kind of 
jazz score in the really abstract kind of way and it is super abstract film uh if you do watch it i do recommend doing a little bit of research before so you can at least place yourself and understand the, even the dutch himself had said that you need to know stuff going into this film because he is just presenting an attempt at objectivity is just presenting these places and wants you to interpret and experience and try and understand for yourself how these places may have led a young man to end up murdering four people. So I thought in relation to national identity, it's a, it's a really interesting film in that in many ways it wouldn't represent in any way the vast majority of people's experience of a national identity and yet at the same time, by just presenting the streets and towns and landscapes and places of Japan, it's an experience that everybody has who lives there, at least at that time. Yeah, I thought that they've raised some interesting ways of thinking about what some of the stuff we talked about at the beginning, like what is a national identity, what is a national cinema, what is a national culture, and this as being oppositional both in the dealing with a killer uh, who goes against the order and systems, but also in being a, a, a revolutionary film that is attempting to undo a lot of our preconceptions and a lot of the ways that other people are attempting to make films about identity and culture at that time, especially in Japan. Now, everywhere, really, everywhere. Even now, this film is like, yep, that's it is its own thing. <laughs> mm. 80 minutes long it's it's there's a subtitled version on youtube and we'll, as we'll put the link up for that something strange and free on the internet this week awesome uh, i also wanted to recommend um tracy moffat's short film nice colored girls which is free to watch on vimeo tracy moffat is an indigenous australian filmmaker artist who's most notably in the public eye in the late 80s early 90s um, nice Colored Girls was made in 1987, and it's a really fascinating short film reincorporating some old colonialist diaries from like the first colonial era, juxtaposing that with contemporary uh, female Indigenous experiences and the way that that kind of plays out and, and intertwines. And it's, it's it's really powerful and imaginative and, and really it's a great, great short film. So I would recommend that for something a bit closer to home if uh, that's uh, something you're interested in as well. I... Thank you, everyone, for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed. We're still setting up a lot of things. We're going to be record a couple of episodes and then release them as we go. So we don't have all the details for what our social medias are yet, but try and hit us up on video vortex australia of some sort and we'll probably have an insta or twitter or something we've put our video vortex oz is at gmail.com is our yeah, email address right. that's video vortex aus or one word at gmail.com if you want to drop us an email well next week we'll come back and talk about something even more rambly probably we'll see you then thank you steph thank you ben thanks very much guys Thanks for listening <laughs> and joining us in this video vortex. Mate. Yeah, you've got to stop ending every episode with that noise. Did I do it last week too? I think you did. Ah, oh, it's now. I've got to do it now. Keep going. <laughs> All right.